Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Chris Ragg and Nick here of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing declining birth rates. And due to the lockdown, unusually, we're recording this remotely. Chris, I believe you've got an article or a bit of research to lead us in on. Off, off, off you go. Yeah, this was, was quite widely sort of publicised um, article in the Lancet by um, researchers at the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. Um, mm-hmm. And it was basically looking at global fertility rates and projecting global fertility rates. And uh, what they found is is really that um, they, they've reduced... Um, you know, dramatically over over the the last number of uh, decades, mm. um, and the you know while uh, in sort of nineteen the nineteen fifty women globally were having an average of four point seven children in their lifetime. Wow. In uh, twenty seventeen, that is two point four, and it's forecast according to their projections to fall below one point seven by um, by the end of this century. So that leads to uh, population reduction. So what they're saying is that if this forecasting is, is correct, um, the number of people on the, on the planet is going to, going to peak in 2064 at just under 10 billion, 9.7 billion, before falling down to 8.8 billion by the end of the century. And then who, who knows uh, where, you know. Um, so to sort of bring this into, into um you know, more kind of understandable terms, I think, if you look at a country like Italy, okay, Mm -hmm. at at the moment, uh, because this is particularly pronounced in the the developed world, uh, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, this is going to spread to the developing world as as, as well, according to this forecasting. But if you take a country like um, Italy at the moment with a population of uh, just over 60 million, 61 million, they're saying that over this time frame, by the end of the um, forecast, their population would be 28 million. So, so more than halving, you know, so it, so it could be very dramatic in, in, in certain places. So, so, you know, I, I suppose there are, you know, there are a few things, but um, you know, not worrying about whether or not the projections are, are accurate. You know, I suppose the, the question is if we might expect some, you know, population reduction, what would the, what would the implications of, of that be? Clearly, one of the implications is going to be we're going to have far fewer young people and far more old old people. So um, oh. under fives uh, are going to go down from uh, 681 million kind of now ish to 401 million. So so nearly a half, you know, a halving of the number of under under fives, 80 year olds uh, are going to go from uh, 141 million now. 866 million according to this uh, this forecasting mm-hmm. by the end of the century so you have way more over 80 year olds than you are you know more than double than you are under five year olds what would that what would that look like i mean how many 80 year olds do you need uh per five year old for it to be a fair fight it's a question. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good question yeah. are zimmer frames allowed or not yeah. right okay there, i mean there's so many interesting that sorry there are so many interesting sort of points that you can spin off this um Nick, spin off an interesting point for well, us. I, I don't, I mean, I know we sort of want to just ask the question of what, what happens if this is true, but I, it is worth saying from a sort of analytical point of view that um, we shouldn't put a great deal of store in this forecast. Any And indeed, in any 
very long range forecast that relies on certain assumptions about things holding constant. Um, might just be worth mentioning in 1937, when the global population was was 2.3 billion, mm. um, Keynes, uh, John Maynard Keynes gave a gave a lecture called, you know, the consequences of a declining population and um, <clears throat> and talked about, you know, the, whether that would be problematic. And um, uh, but, you know, it was generally felt at the time that with with two, uh, two and a bit billion people that the world was overpopulated and that generally, you know, if the population fell, as it was expected to do, then that would be okay. And then, of course, we have the Second World War and the baby boom, and we're now up at, you know, three times that level of population. There is no reason to believe that this forecast is particularly, you know, robust. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there are lots of things we don't know about what drives um, those sorts of the the sort of zeitgeist elements of fertility, you know, why, why it is that people choose not to have children. It might be that when we get to a certain level of wealth, different forces kick in, um, you know, different. It could be that more leisure in the future will will induce people to have more children or, you know, we, we just don't know. We don't we don't know for sure. Um, so just caveat. That's the caveat. No, I was just going to say, you know, absolutely. I mean, some of the some of the speculation around this article was, you know, talking in very, very um, speculative terms uh, about, you know, could could we could we just continue reducing until the population, you know, the human race no longer exists. Now, that is Mm. that that kind of forecasting. Clearly, we're, we're going to adapt as things as things happen, right? You know, uh, I mean, there are lots of historical examples of birth rates changing in response to uh, um, environmental conditions and so on. And mm. we can only imagine that the same is true. So, uh, I mean, their, their modeling was more sophisticated than simply saying, look, here's a line for birth rates. You know, there you go. Look at that. That's going to be bad, isn't it? Uh, or good, perhaps. Maybe we do need fewer people. I mean, that's one of the things we can we can uh, discuss. But um, but as nick said right to ha- heavily caveat this with yeah we're clearly going to adapt to the circumstances we find ourselves in yeah but i think as you were saying um this sort of you know begs all sorts of interest interesting questions about you know what is a good population number um what are the potential side effects and um... i think it's probably worth delving then into the sort of mechanisms where um you know how does how what what do we expect population level to affect one thing it's worth disposing of because it's so it's so prevalent in the history mm. um, sort of naive economic thought is the lump of labor fallacy, um, which uh, this is a sort of a bit kind of reverse version of it. But uh, the lump of labor fallacy says that there's a certain amount of work that needs to be done. Mm. And if you get, e.g., a machine to do it, <clears throat> that means some people must be out of work as a result. Mm. And and that. um you know, if we have more population, the problem is there won't be jobs for them because other people, the existing population will be doing all the jobs and the new people won't have jobs. Now, that's completely also known as the Jeremy Corbyn fallacy. I think. Right. Uh, that that is completely um, uh, incorrect. Right. So we know that that's historically but the, the economy has always expanded to fill the number of people we have. Um, but. There are some important elements of, of um, you know, of sort of looking at how, how numbers of population affect um, mm. affect welfare. And f- first of all, on a very basic level, you know, the more people you have, by and large, or in the long run and over the grand scheme of things, the lower we would expect their average income to be under sort of standard economic models because of declining returns uh, to, to scale, essentially. So, you know, if you double the population, this theory, the sort of basic approach would say, 
you are not going to double output. You're, you're, you're going to do something less than double output. Um, however, that may not be true. There may be other effects, externalities, um, network effects. So it could be the fact that it could be that, you know, when you have 10 people in um, an organization, to some extent, you, you produce more than, you know, 10 nights of when you have nine people. And one of the key, um, one of those key externalities is innovation. And there's a lot of fairly plausible, although it's quite surprising, but plausible theories that say that essentially innovation is a, is, is a result of the number of people you have, because innovation happens because certain ideas pop up almost at random but the more people you have the more probability you have of, of getting a good idea which will advance productivity and so more global neurons exactly and and actually the weird thing is uh, when you try to model you know innovation and speed of productivity growth using population it works really well so now i'm not committing 100 percent to that but i think it's an interest it is interesting and worth thinking about that actually, if we have population declining, we, we might see lower productivity growth as a result, <clears throat> even though in th the sort of naive approach might be to say, well, there'll be more stuff to go round. So, you know, it'll be OK. But actually, we might expect to see lower growth. But I think in the sh in the short term, the most the obvious cost is, uh, as Chris alluded to, this this problem of, um, you know, of, of the difference in the sort of top heavy age um, curve. Old people are, I mean, people talk, I know a lot of narrative about the NHS is about cuts and, and stuff. Well, there haven't really been cuts in the NHS budget, not significantly. The significant thing that has happened over yeah. the last sort of, you know, couple of decades has been a, a, a massive increase in the number of old people living, living to be old. And, and I think an 80 year old costs something like 10 times uh, per year on average an 80 year old costs 10 times more than like a, a you know a 30 year old um, mm. in terms of health so i think the challenge from that point of view there's a there's a social one political one could this exacerbate the generation gap are young people going to feel increasingly you know like they're supporting this huge weight um but also a, a technology challenge of you know how how will we can we make health we don't just want people to live longer you know, we've got to make them be pr productive for longer in order to sort of compensate for the for the large, vast number of, of people. Uh, perhaps we could perhaps, perhaps we could have some kind of system where we had like um, a little sort of diamond type thing in our palms of our hands, and that changes color over time. And you know, when it gets a certain color, off we go to the rapture. Are you, are you, going, like are you going all Logan's Run on us? Yeah, so, I certainly yeah, am. Yeah. yeah. Um, Chris, let's hear about um, the implications of an aging population. Um, either tell us more about that. Any thoughts you've got on that, or um, well, any further examples? Yeah, well, I think fertility rate itself is is an, just an interesting thing. So I think that would be probably the thing that people would would fixate on, right? And you know, if you look in if you look in all of the sort of thought experiments that are done in literature, you know, they um, they don't generally uh, paint a good picture of when fertility rates go down. And and the fact that we measure fertility rate by the amount of procreation per woman suggests it's going to be perceived as a as a, a an issue attached to, to women. And if you look at, um, you know, like I say, if you look at uh, fictional examples, things like Children of Men or um, Handmaid's Tale and uh, Testaments, you know, in in uh, Handmaid's Tale, the the pretext for establishing Gilead is is 
largely about um, you know falling reproductive uh, reproduction rates. And... It's a bit awkward, but I don't. Has someone explained to Chris about that men are involved in reproduction? Yes, no, I, I, I was aware of that, but the point. I wonder if now is the time and place. The, no, but it does focus on women. It does. You're quite yeah. right. So the, so the, um, so the, the, the sort of brunt of it, even though it is, and the, and this is brought through in, you know, Atwood acknowledges this that actually, you know, the infertility in most cases is probably associated with the the men in, posi- mm. in position, but it's it's tied to the women. So I think there's there's you know one of the issues that's that's potentially going to sort of. Um, come into play is that it will be seen as a sort of woman's role you know the the women's role to fix this and that there could be some quite you know quite draconian things that occur and if you look at the flip side so like you know and you say oh well that's you know maybe that's a bit far-fetched um but if you look at things like policies that have actually occurred so this is almost the reverse problem but the one child policy in in china right Mm. Uh, you know that was to decrease um uh, reproductive rates you know to try and limit the 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 population and there's quite a lot we could probably learn from that but in terms of the policy implications of that uh you know you you saw um all sorts of quite extreme things like uh you know enforced sterilization and and uh, abortion um you infanticide you know in rural communities uh, uh-huh. of of female children a skewing of the of the gender difference so different places will if this happens you know different places will react to this in different ways and some of the ways that could happen could be really not not great equally uh-huh. You know, we we're already. You know, the UK is down to what was it? I think two point one. We're we're literally at the point at which um, we we're not going to increase our population by by uh, our own reproduction of those people here at the moment. Uh, and um, that's kind of hap- You know, that's kind of just happened benignly. You know, and, and that's been fine. So, it, it, you know, I think the social implications, as you know, Nick talked about the economic implications. I think the social implications could be profound but they'd probably be pretty patchy um, yeah yeah um nick what do you want to move on to so we don't normally think of population as something the government should be overly concerned with by which i mean the level of population it obviously has an imp- has uh, it's a significant political issue when we talk about immigration but governments do not have a target for what the uk population should be and and you know the examples like the ones Chris was talking about are pretty rare historically. You know, um, obviously a lot of countries have promoted. I mean, the, historically the most significant thing that people tend to do is try and promote population growth um, because more people equals bigger armies. And you know, but we don't really do that anymore. Mm. It's considered to be something that you know is is best left to individuals to decide. But. Suppose that we were going to try and design an ideal level of the population. Well, so this is a problem that um, so the Aleph Insights official philosopher, who is Derek Parfit, mm. um, who we covered, we did cover on one of our early podcasts, yeah. actually, because he just we did a sort of obituary roundup of Derek Parfit. Um, his, in his book, Reasons and Persons, he, he devotes a chapter, really a whole, a whole kind of chunk of the book to thinking about future generations and non-existent people and the extent to which they ought to be considered. Now, you might say, what have non-existent people ever done for us? Who cares? Um, but the, the thing is that um, the uh, there is lots of times where we think about um, uh, non-existent people. And there's a 
the kind of uh, one of his first thought experiments is about pregnant mother who currently has a temporary illness, but which if she has a simple treatment, um, if she sorry, if, unless she undergoes a, a, a simple treatment for it, her child will have some sort of congenital disorder. Just imagine. Mm. I don't know if this mm. is medically plausible. Um, but if she has the treatment, the child will be fine. Mm. Uh, compared to a woman suffers from an illness who, um, if she if she has a baby now, if she gets pregnant now, her child will have the congenital illness. But mm. in, uh, if she does it in six months' time, she'll have a completely normal, healthy child. Mm. And you might think, well, the, the obvious thing to do there in both cases is to either have the treatment or wait it out. Be much better mm. to wait six months and have a child who's going to be healthy and not. But the the what Parfit's point here is. In example B, it's a different child. What we're saying is that the first child is better for that child who would have been born, but with the congenital illness, to not have been born at all, right? Now, mm. so we do make decisions. We make decisions where we compare non-existence and uh, and existence with a certain level of welfare. And the fact that we do make those kinds of, we can make judgments about that, shows that we do we are capable of thinking about the idea of there being value in non-existent people, whether it's positive or negative. So that that's the kind of question, really, is what value do non-existent people have? Or let's imagine that we had we could snap our fingers and make it the case that there's, there'll be a billion more people in a year's time mm. and that those billion more people will be broadly happy. Right. It, should we do that? Would it be better to have more people, even if, let's say, the average level of happiness was a bit lower across the board, but where, you know, it, it, the the total amount of happiness was higher? That That's that's the key question here, you know, uh, is. And we, we do have concern for future generations. We worry about their welfare. You know, we think about the environment and our legacy for the future. Um, but anyway, Parfit, essentially, he he. Um, it doesn't really come to a theory. He says he got, I think he says it's like theory X that it, there isn't really a way of answering this, which, um, which is satisfying. And there's a very good um, paradox, which uh, I can explain if you like, called the mere addition paradox, oh. which essentially says that all our, our intuitions lead to a conclusion that is, would be really bad. Um, do you want to hear it? Go on then. Yeah. So imagine a world where there's 100 super happy people. Right. Yeah. Now, what you can, if you want, create um, another 100 people on the other side of the world who are 80 percent as happy as the super happy people. Right. Mm. Is that better or worse? Is that a better world than a world where there's just 100 super happy people? We've got 100 super happy people or 180 people where 100, are, sorry, 200 people where 100 are super happy and 100 are pretty much super happy. Mm. I think I think for me the 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 answer depends on whether you whether you include suffering right and where suffering begins and un and not being happy ends right right you because... let's let's you have to assume for the purposes of this paradox that these people are very happy to be alive not quite as happy as the bliss people but they are still very very happy to be alive and they're having a great life and they enjoy themselves and then they die is that is that better to have those people in the world or not but hold on also i think presumably an extension of this would be what about 60 what about 50 what about 40 I would right have thought. well that's where we're going so yeah. so well so, also there's the other element which is just built into human nature which is 
the the eighty percent of people, or rather the hundred percent people who are eighty percent as happy as the hundred percent happy people, are going to become distinctly less happy when they realise there are some people on the other side of the world who are a hundred percent happy. Maybe, maybe. Let's assume that the eighty percent factors that in. So the fact that they're eighty percent as happy it already includes some dissatisfaction. Right, they were ninety um, percent as happy, but then they found out. Then they found out about exactly. that. Um, yeah. so, so anyway, the point is that your intuition is supposed to say, well, that that is obviously better. It's obviously better to have a bunch of happy mm. people alive than not existing. I mean, you know, obviously, otherwise we might be saying it would be better to stop someone existing who was alive and happy um, mm. for some reason. And then, and then Parthit goes, okay, well, if you're happy with those, what about uh, what about the next situation where we have 200 people, so pretty much the same as before, but this time they're all as happy as each other and they're 99% as happy as the as the uh, original people, right? So now we, we've, we've we, the, the, so the total number, the average happiness is, is higher than it was in the previous example, right? Mm. Fair enough. We've lost a few people who've got that last 1%, but that we've more than compensated for that with the other people. And, um, and if you, as most people do, go, well, intuitively, yes, that sounds better than the second case. Like we've moved in a direction which which is making making things better. Then mm. he's got you. Path so what you're saying you is trap. basically we made 100 people unhappy in, well, in the second situation. it's worse than that. So this is why it's called the repugnant conclusion, because because taken to the extreme, what you do is you keep adding people in blocks of 100 and making them ever so slightly less happy. And every single time you have to accept that you're improving the situation according to this to this sort of oh. intuition until you have a situation where the whole entire earth is full of billions of people who are only just slightly happier than being dead. <laughs> and, and that's the repugnant conclusion. And and yeah. um, it it isn't resolved. Uh, you know, there isn't a resolution to this. So some people embrace it and they say, yes, uh, strict utilitarians say, yes, we should. We should just keep having more people. More people is good. And and it does, you know, a world in which there's billions and billions of people, but they're all, you know, only just happier than, okay. than not at all is good. Whereas other people, other people, were, you know, have sort of tried to challenge the idea of measuring welfare like that in the first place. And, you yeah. know, but, but I think, I mean, it's, it's something that it's a really, really interesting argument. I, I feel very like, challenging for yeah. uh, for this kind of policy discussion because yeah. you know what is the right answer? Do we want more people for their sake, let alone our own? Well, as is sometimes the case, it all feels a bit bleak, and unfortunately, the person I want to go to next usually makes things bleaker. <laughs> so um, we 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 need to finish, um, Chris. Um, Anything that we've not said yet that you want to cover? Yeah, on? well, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna put a little ray of sunshine in 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 there just to. I'll, I'll believe that when I hear yeah. it. Let's it's ray of sunshine. Yeah. Is one day we'll all be dead anyway. Exactly. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, no. I was going to say that um, you know I I I I think that um, I think there are two two reasons for for hope. Uh, one is this idea that I think we are self we are self calibrating. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think it's largely accepted that um, that at the moment, the, the extent to which we we um, consume resources and the size of the population and certainly the size of the projected population is becoming difficult to sustain. Right. And, and without without that happiness going down quite a lot. Right. So um, I, I, I think there's an element where we actually do want to think about. Um, you know, if consumption is a source of happiness, but overconsumption is a source of um, misery, 
there's there's a point at which we want to say, well, maybe there is an optimum population then, and it's where that's sort of balanced, where you can you can have what you want, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't have negative repercussions that cause misery elsewhere or net misery. Demographic um, micawberism. Exactly. Um, so I think if we, um, you, you know, as we go forward, I, I think the fact that we're starting to reduce our population or at least our, our growth rate mm. is probably a, a positive thing. Um, and the, uh, so, so I think that's, that's good. Uh, mm. and I think the, the other thing, uh, that I will throw in there is that, um, you know, we're not going to, even though I constantly refrain about the uh the the hard work of children and 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 the fact that sometimes they might be a net not quite a net source of misery but there's a lot I of misery never balanced, to this. <laughs> balanced by a lot of pleasure right and a lot of uh, a lot of good things um and so i do, i don't think we will we we can give up that that process i i, I think it is beyond human nature to not reproduce at all. Now it might reproduce at a rate which leads to population decline, but reproduction itself, I think, is unlikely to to disappear. I think it's so fundamental within our genetics, you know, all the, the sort of Dawkins type stuff that um, that it's here to stay. Those eggs will find another way of making, yeah, an egg. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, look, just to finish us off, um, quick question. Um, if you could live in a world, if you could choose, would you rather live in a world with 100,000 people or in a world with 100 billion people? Um, let's start off with um, Chris. What, what are your thoughts? What do you reckon? Well, yeah. So, I mean, obviously, they're two massive extremes, right? But so the question, the, the crux of the matter is, would we rather have underpopulation or overpopulation, right? They're, but you know, it's a bit like saying, "Would you rather boil to death or freeze to death?" You know, it's. Um, uh, well, but bear in mind that at one point in Earth's history, we did have a hundred thousand. Yeah, we did have a hundred thousand people, but it was it was it was pretty darn miserable then. I suspect you know, but assuming that um, you know, regardless of how we got there, right? Assuming we maintain modern technology, right? Yeah. So it hasn't been as a result of you know us being thrown back to the dark ages and and vast swathes of people being wiped out. So let's just ignore that bit and yeah. say we can have a hundred thousand people or a hundred billion people i think i would go for the smaller the smaller number so long as we would concentrate i would find a very it would very bleak unpopulated world you know just everything like siberia would would be quite depressing um but it doesn't my, have to be like siberia <laughs> yeah yeah but my my misanthropic nature means i just could not cope with uh a hundred billion people it's, it's, ba it's bad enough to be honest with you three so, or two, uh, Nick. Yeah, well, I, I'm I'm going to go I'm going to go with the uh, with the sort of global. One one of the things I quite like about Star Wars, uh, the prequels, is is Coruscant. I really like the idea of a planet. What's Coruscant? I can't remember. It's, it's, the, it's the capital of the Galactic Federation. Ah, it's just yeah, a giant yeah, yeah. planet. Yeah, it's basically one city. city. It's just one big. Right. City. I think um, there is. I love cities, uh, as I'm sure I've bored on about in previous podcasts. I, I find them much more interesting than the countryside, right? You can, I mean, you can get lost in them. They have far more geography and detail. And, you know, when you get cities that are, that are big and old and they, they grow up in layers and there are sort of hidden things behind other things. I love all that. So I, I would go with 100 billion. And, and I think, you know, we would, 
the, the, um, the technological progress would be, we're assuming we can have that keep pace and in fact accelerate. You know, I think we 100 billion people would give us a real, that really would give us a good incentive to get off this planet and start colonizing, you know, the rest of the universe, as, as you mentioned. So I, I, I sort of feel like, well, you know, one, one day there might be 100 billion people, maybe not on Earth, but there might be 100 billion people dotted around. Uh, yeah. I would love to see that, see what it was like. I reckon yeah. it's more likely we'll have 100,000, but there we go. Well, I'll bet, I'll, well, we should make a bet. Pays off in a thousand years. See yeah. Where going. Yeah. Okay. Um, nice. Right. Let's uh, finish off there. Uh, thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Chris Ragg and Nick Kerr of Aleph Insights. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>